15, and another, the winds blew the seeds of grasses about, and willows and aspens crept up the mountain sides, then came the squirtles, scattering the nuts of the pine, other seeds came too, in other ways, till at last the barren hillside was no longer barren, the brooks ran over the surface of the crust and disturbed by the fires within, and were clear and cold as mountain brooks should be, but the rain and melted snow will never all remain on the surface, some of it falls into cracks or joints or porous places in the rock, and from this come underground streams or springs, but in this region a stream could not run long underground without coming in contact with the old still burning fires, when a crust is formed over the lava, it cools very slowly, when the crust is a rod or too deep, the lava within is almost as well protected as if it were at the center of the earth, whenever the water came down into the fire, the hot rocks would be furious with indignation, and tearing the water to atoms they would throw it back to the surface as steam, then the explosive force of the steam would in turn tear up the rocks, making still larger the hole through which the water came, when the rocks were very hot, a little water upon them would make a terrible commotion like the shock of an earthquake, when much water came down, it would hiss and boil high in the air, as it tried to break the cushion of steam which came between it and the lava, and all this went on in hundreds of places and maybe for thousands of years, the hot rocks glowed and sweltered in the ground, and the cold snow water crept after them closer and closer, while more and more vigorously the rocks resented the intrusion, sometimes the water would go down in a mess through a cleft, when it would be hurled bodily the very way it came, at other times the water came down little by little, insinuating itself into many places at once, then the hot rocks threw it back in many little honeycomb channels, and by the spreading of these channels the rocks were at last crumbled to pieces, the hard black lava and the glass-like obsidian were changed to a white kaolin as soft and powdery as chalk, and as the water fought its way, gaining a little every year, steadily working between the joints in the enemy's armor and as surely being thrown back with violence if it penetrated too far, the animals and the plants followed in the wake of the water, and took possession of the territory as fast as it was won, at last the Pliocene times were over, for all times come to an end, the one sure thing on the earth is the certainty of change, with the change of time came on the earth's great winter, the snow drifts on the lava were piled up mountain high, snow is but ice gathered in little fragments which will grow solid under pressure, as the snow accumulated it began to move, forming great rivers of ice which ran down the courses of the stream, and as they slowly moving, gigantic ice rivers tore away huge blocks of lava and pushed them down the mountain sides, where the rocks had been softened by the action of steam, the ice wore out deep valleys, and everything that it touched was smoothed and polished, the winter of the great ice age lasted a very long time, many thousands of years, but, long as it was and long ago, it came at last to an end not to a full stop, of course, for even now, some of its snow still lingers on the highest peaks that surround the lava beds, then the winters grew shorter and the summers longer, the south winds blew and the ice melted away, first from the plain and then from the mountains, the water ran down the sides of the lava bed, cutting deep gorges or cannons, so deep that the sun can hardly see the bottom, and into the joints and clefts of the rocks more and more water went, to be hurled back with greater and greater violence for all the waters of all the snow cannot put out a mile deep of fire, in the old depressions where the ice had chiseled away the softer rocks, there were formed lakes of the standing water, and one of these was more than thirty miles long, winding in and out among the mountain ridges, in the lake bottom the water soaked through down to the hot lava below, from which it was thrown boiling back to the surface again, 
Fountains of scalding water in the icy lake. The cold ice age has killed all the plants in the region, and it had driven off the animals that could be driven, and had then buried the rest. But when the snow was gone the creatures all came back again. Grass and meadow flowers of a hundred kinds came up from the valleys below. The willow and the aspen took their place again by the brookside, and the red fir and the mountain pine covered the hills with their somber green. The birds came back. The wild goose swam and screamed, and the winter wren caroled his bright song loudest when there seemed least cause for rejoicing. The beaver cut his timber and patiently worked at his dams. The thriftless porcupine destroyed a tree for every morning meal. The gray jay, the camp robber, followed the Indians about in hope that some forgotten piece of meat or a boiled root might fall to his share, while the buffalo, the bear, and the elk each carried on his affairs in his own way, as did a host of lesser animals, all of whom rejoiced when the snowbound region was at last opened for settlement. Time went on. The water and the fire were every day in mortal struggle, and always when the water was thrown back repulsed, it renewed the contest as vigorously as before. The fire retreated leaving great stretches of land to its enemy, that it might concentrate its strength where its strength was greatest, and the water steadily gained, for the great ocean ever lay behind it, so for century after century they wrestled with each other, the water, the fire, the snow, the animals and the plants, but the fishes who had once lived in the mountain torrents were no longer there, they had been boiled and frozen, and in one way or another destroyed or driven away, now they could not get back, Every stream had its cannon, and in each cannon was a waterfall so high that no trout could leak up. Although they used to try it every day, not one ever succeeded, so it went on. A great many things happened in other parts of the world. America had been discovered and the colonies were feeling their way toward the Pacific Ocean, and in the vanguard was the famous expedition of Lewis and Clark, which went overland to the mouth of the River Columbia. John Coulter was a hunter in this expedition and by some chance he went across the mountains on the old trail of the Nez Perces Indians which leads across the divide from the Missouri waters to those of the Columbia. When he came back from the Nez Perces trail he told most wonderful tales of what he had seen at the head of the Missouri. There were cataracts of scalding water which shot straight up into the air, there were blue ponds hot enough to boil fish, there were springs that came up snorting and steaming, and which would turn trees into stone, the woods were full of holes from which issued streams of sulfur, there were cannons of a tall depth with walls of ashes full of holes which let off steam like a locomotive, and there were springs which looked peaceful enough, but which at times, would burst like a bomb. In short, everyone laughed at Coulter and his yarns, and this place where all lies were true was familiarly known as, Coulter's Hell, but for once John Coulter told the truth, and the truth could not easily be exaggerated, but no one believed him. When others who afterwards followed him over the Nez Perces trail told the same stories, people said they had been up to Coulter's hell and had learned to lie. But, as time passed, other men told what they had seen, until, in 1870, a sort of official survey was made under the lead of Washburn and Doan. This party got the general bearings of the region, named many of the mountains, and found so much of interest that the next year Dr. Hayden, the United States geologist, sent out a party for systematic exploration. The Hayden party came up from Colorado on horseback, through dense and tangled forests, across mountain torrents, and other craggy peaks. The story of this expedition has been most charmingly told by its youngest member, another John Coulter. Professor Coulter was the botanist of the survey, and he won the first of his many laurels on this expedition, in 1872. 
Acting on Hayden's report, Congress took the matter in hand and set apart this whole region as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, and such it remains to this day. But, while only of late this region has had a public history, the long-forgotten years between the glacial period and the expedition of Lewis and Clark were not without interest in the history of the trout. For all these years the fishes have been trying to mount the waterfalls in order to ascend to the plateau above, year after year, as the spawning time came on. They leaked against the falls of the Gardiner, the Gibbon, and the Firehole Rivers, but only to fall back impotent in the pools at their bases, but the mightiest cataract of all, the Great Falls of the Yellowstone, they finally conquered, and in this way it was done, not by the trout of the Yellowstone River, but by their brothers on the other side of the divide, these followed up the Columbia to the headwaters of the Snake River, its great tributary, past the beautiful Heart Lake and then on to the stream now called Pacific Creek, which rises on the very crest of the divide, in the space between the stream, which flows west to help form the Snake River, and a smaller stream now called Atlantic Creek, flowing down the east slope of the divide, the great chain of the Rocky Mountains shrinks to a narrow plateau of damp meadow, not a fourth of a mile in width, and some years, when the snows are heavy and melt late in the spring, this whole region is covered with standing water, the trout had bided their time until they found it so, and now they were ready for action. Before the water was drained they had crossed the divide and were descending on the Atlantic side toward the Yellowstone Lake. As the days went by, this colony of bold trout spirits grew and multiplied and filled the waters of the Great Clear Lake, where their descendants remain to this day, and no other fish is not the chub, nor the sucker, nor the whitefish, nor the minnow, nor the blob had ever climbed Pacific Creek. None of them were able to follow where the trout had gone, and none of them had ever been seen in the Yellowstone Lake. What the trout had done in this lake their victories and defeats, their struggles with the bears and pelicans, and with the terrible worm, joint enemy of trout and pelicans alike must be left for another story. So the trout climbed the Yellowstone Falls by way of the back staircase. For all we know, they had gone down it on the other side, and in a similar way. By stealing over from Blacktail Deer Creek, they overcame the Undine Falls in Lava Creek and passed its steep obsidian walls, which not all the fishes in the world could climb. In the Gibbon River the cataracts have proved to the trout an impassable barrier, but, strangely enough, its despised associate, the sluggish, chunky blob, the little soft-bodied, smooth, black tadpole-like fellow, with twinkling eyes and a voracious appetite a fish who cannot leap at all has crossed this barrier. Hundreds of blood live under the stones in the upper reaches of the stream. The only fish in the given waters. There he island and it is a standing puzzle even to himself to know how he got there. We might imagine, perhaps, that some far-off ancestor, some ancient queen of the bloods, was seized by an osprey and carried away in the air. Perhaps an eagle was watching and forced the osprey to give up its prey. Perhaps in the struggle the blood escaped, falling into the river above the falls to form the beginning of the future colony, at any rate, there is the great impassable waterfall, the blob above it and below, the osprey has its nest on a broken pine tree, above the cataract, and its tyrant master, the bald eagle, watches it from a still higher crag whenever it goes fishing, two years ago the Han, Marshall MacDonald, whose duty as United States Fish Commissioner it is to look after the fishes wherever they may be, sent me to this country to see what could be done for his wards, it was a proud day when I set out from Mammoth Hot Springs astride a black cayuse, or Indian pony, which answered to the name of Jump, 
followed by a long train of 16 other cayuses of every variety of color and character, the most notable of all being a white pony called Tinker. At some remote and unidentified period of her life she had bucked and killed a tradesman who bestrode her against her will, and thereby, as in the old Norse legends, she has inherited his strength, his wickedness, and his name, and when, after many adventures, I came back from this strange land and told the story of its fishes other men were sent out from Washington with nets and buckets, they gathered up the trout and carried them to the rivers above the falls, and now all the brooks and pools of the old law the bed, the fairest streams in the world, are full of their natural inhabitants, the colors of animals from chapters in popular natural history, my Sir John Lubbock, Bart, MPFBS etc., the color of animals is by no means a matter of chance, it depends on many considerations, but in the majority of cases tends to protect the animal from danger by rendering it less conspicuous, perhaps it may be said that if coloring is mainly protective, there ought to be but few brightly colored animals, there are, however, not a few cases in which vivid colors are themselves protective, the kingfisher itself, though so brightly colored, is by no means easy to see, the blue harmonizes with the water, and the bird as it darts along the stream looks almost like a flash of sunlight, besides which, protection is not the only consideration, let us now consider the prevalent colors of animals and see how far they support the rule, desert animals are generally the color of the desert, thus, for instance, the lion, the antelope, and the wild ass are all sand-colored. Indeed, says Canon Tristram, in the desert, where neither trees, brushwood, nor even undulation of the surface afford the slightest protection to its nose, a modification of color which shall be assimilated to that of the surrounding country is absolutely necessary. Hence, without exception, the upper plumage of every bird, whether lark, chad, sylvain, or sand-grouse, and also the fur of all the smaller mammals and the skin of all the snakes and lizards, is of one uniform sand color. It is interesting to note that, while the lion is sand colored like the desert, the long, upright, yellow stripes of the tiger make it very difficult to see the animal among the long dry grasses of the Indian jungles in which it lives. The leopard, again, and other tree cats are generally marked with spots which resemble gleams of light glancing through the leaves. The colors of birds are in many cases perhaps connected with the position and mode of construction of their nests. Thus, we know that hen birds are generally less brightly colored than the cocks, and this is partly, perhaps, because bright colors would be a danger to the hens while sitting on their eggs, when the nest is placed underground or in the hole of a tree, etc. We find it no longer to be such an invariable rule that the hen bird is dull colored, but, on the contrary, she is then often as gaily colored as the male. Such, for instance, is the case with the hen kingfisher, which is one of the brightest of British birds and one of the very few which make their nests underground, the hen woodpecker, which is also gaily colored and builds in hollow trees, forms a second instance, in the few cases where the hens are as conspicuously colored as the cocks, and yet the nest is open to view, we generally find that the hens are strong, pugnacious birds, and while able to defend themselves, there are even instances, though these are comparatively rare, in which the hens are more brilliantly colored than the cocks, and it is an interesting fact that it is then the cocks, and not the hens, which hatch the eggs, it therefore seems to be a rule, with very few exceptions, that when both the cocks and hens are of strikingly gay or conspicuous colors, the nest is such as to conceal the sitting bird, while, whenever there is a striking contrast of colors, the nest is open and the sitting bird exposed to view, again, 
most fishes are dark above and pale below. This points to the same fact, for when one looks down into the dark water, the dark color of their backs renders them the less easy to distinguish, while, to an enemy looking up from below, the pale belly would be less conspicuous against the light of the sky. Those fishes which live deep down in the depths of the ocean present no such contrast between the upper and under surface. Many of the smaller animals which live in the sea are as transparent as glass, and are consequently very difficult to distinguish. It is sometimes said that if animals were really colored with reference to concealment, sheep would be green, like grass. This, however, is quite a mistake. If they were green they would really be more easy to see. In the gray of the morning and the evening twilight, just the time when wild animals generally feed, gray and stone colors are most difficult to distinguish. Sheep were originally mountain animals, and everyone who has ever been on a mountain side knows how difficult it is to distinguish a sheep, at some distance, from a mass of stone or rock. It island again, a great advantage to the rabbit and hare to be colored like earth, black or white rabbits are more easy to see, and consequently more likely to be killed. This, however, does not apply to those which are kept in captivity, and we know that tame rabbits are often black and white. Again. In the far north, where for months together the ground is covered with snow, the white color, which would be a danger here, becomes an advantage, and many arctic animals, like the polar bear and polar hare, are white, while others, such as the mountain hare and ptarmigan, change their color, being brown in summer and white in winter, so are the arctic fox and the ermine, to whom it is then an advantage to be white, not to avoid danger but in order that they may be the more easily able to steal unperceived upon their prey. Many of the cases in which certain insects escape danger by their similarity to plants are well known, the leaf insect and the walking stick insect are familiar and most remarkable cases, the larvae of insects afford, also, many interesting examples, and in other respects teach us, indeed, many instructive lessons. It would be a great mistake to regard them as merely preparatory stages in the development of the perfect insect. They are much more than this, for external circumstances act on the larvae, as well as on the perfect insect, both, therefore, are liable to adaptation. In fact, the modifications which insect larvae undergo may be divided into two kinds developmental, or those which tend to approximation to the mature form, and adaptational or adaptive those which tend to suit them to their own mode of life. It is a remarkable fact, that the forms of larvae do not depend on those of the mature insect. In many cases, for instance, very similar larvae produce extremely dissimilar insects. In other cases, similar, or comparatively similar, perfect insects have very dissimilar larvae. Indeed, a classification of insects founded on larvae would be quite different from that founded on the perfect insects. The group to which the bees, wasps, and ants belong, for instance, and which, so far as the perfect insects are concerned, form a very natural division, would be divided into two, or rather one portion of them namely, the soft flies would be united to the butterflies and moths. Now, why do the larvae of soft flies differ from those of their allies, and resemble those of butterflies and moths? It is because their habits differ from those of ants and bees, and they feed on leaves like ordinary caterpillars. In some cases the form changes considerably during the larval state. From this point of view, the transformations of a small beetle, called Ceteris, which have been carefully observed by Anne Fabra, are peculiarly interesting. The genus Ceteris, which is allied to the blister fly and to the oil beetle, 
is parasitic on a kind of solitary bee which excavates subterranean galleries, each leading to a cell. The eggs of the beetle, which are deposited at the entrance of the galleries made by the bees, are hatched at the end of September or beginning of October, and we might not unnaturally expect that the young larvae, which are active little creatures with six serviceable legs, would at once eat their way into the cells of the bee. No such thing, till the month of April following they remain without leaving their birthplace, and consequently without food, nor do they in this long time change either in form or size. M. Fabre ascertained this, not only by examining the burrow of the bees, but also by direct observations of some young larvae kept in captivity. In April, however, his captives at last awoke from their long lethargy, and hurried anxiously about their prisons, naturally inferring that they were in search of food. M. Fabra supposed that this would consist either of the larvae or pupae of the bee, or of the honey with which it stores itself. All three were tried without success. The first two were neglected, and the larvae, when placed on the latter, either hurried away or perished in the attempt, being evidently unable to deal with the sticky substance. M. Fabra was in despair. The first ray of light came to him from our countryman Newport, who ascertained that a small parasite found on one of the wild bees was, in fact, the larva of the oil beetle, the larvae of Ceteris much resembled this larva, acting on this hint, M. Fabry examined many specimens of the bee, and found on them at last the larvae of his Ceteris, the males of the bee emerged from the pupae sooner than the females, and M. Fabry ascertained that, as they come out of their galleries, the little Ceteris larvae fasten upon them, not, however, for long, instinct teaches them that they are not yet in the straight path of development, and, Watching their opportunity, they pass from the male to the female bee. Guided by these indications, M. Fabry examined several cells of the bee, in some, the egg of the bee floated by itself on the surface of the honey, in others, on the egg, as on a raft, sat the still more minute larva of the Ceteris. The mystery was solved, at the moment when the egg is laid, the Ceteris larva springs upon it, even while the poor mother is carefully fastening up her cell. Her mortal enemy is beginning to devour her offspring, for the egg of the bee serves not only as a raft, but as a repast. The honey, which is enough for either, would be too little for both, and the Ceteris, therefore, at its first meal, relieves itself from its only rival. After eight days the egg is consumed, and on the empty shell the Ceteris undergoes its first transformation, and makes its appearance in a very different form. The honey, which was fatal before, is now necessary the activity which before was necessary, is now useless, consequently, with the change of skin, the active, slim larva changes into a white fleshy grub, so organized as to float on the surface of the honey, with the mouth beneath and the breathing holes above the surface, for insects breathe, not as we do through the mouth, but through a row of holes arranged along the side, in the state it remains until the honey is consumed, then the animal contracts, and detaches itself from its skin within which the further transformations take place. In the next stage the larva has a solid corneous envelope and an oval shape, and, in its color, consistency, and immobility, resembles the chrysalis of a fly. The time passed in this condition varies much. When it has elapsed, the animal molts again, again changes its form. After this, it becomes a pupa, without any remarkable peculiarities. Finally, after these wonderful changes and adventures, in the month of August the perfect beetle makes its appearance. In fact, whenever in any group we find differences in form or color, we shall always find them associated with differences in habit. Let us take the case of caterpillars. 
The prevailing color of caterpillars is green, like that of leaves. The value of this to the young insect, the protection it affords, are obvious. We must all have observed how difficult it is to distinguish small green caterpillars from the leaves on which they feed. When, however, they become somewhat larger, their form betrays them, and it is important that there should be certain marks to divert the eye from the outlines of the body. This is effected, and much protection is given, by longitudinal lines figure 1, which accordingly are found on a great many caterpillars. These lines, both in color and thickness, much resemble some of the lines on leaves those, for instance, of grasses, and also the streaks of shadow which occur among foliage. If this be the explanation of them, then they ought to be wanting, as a general rule, in very small caterpillars, and should prevail most among those which feed on or among grasses. Now, similar lines occur on a great number of caterpillars belonging to most different groups of butterflies and moths. As you may see by turning over the illustrations of any monograph of the group, they exist among the hot moths as, for instance, in the hummingbird hot moth, they occur in many butterflies, especially in those which feed on grass, and in many moths. But you will find that the smallest caterpillars rarely possess these white streaks. As regards the second point, also, the streaks are generally wanting in caterpillars which feed on large leaf plants, the satyridae, on the contrary. All possess them, and all live on grass. In fact we may say, as a general rule, that these longitudinal streaks only occur on caterpillars which live on or among narrow-leaved plants. As the insect grows, these lines often disappear on certain segments, and are replaced by diagonal lines. These diagonal lines figure to occur in a great many caterpillars, belonging to the most distinct families of butterflies and moths. They come off just at the same angle as the ribs of leaves and resemble them very much in general effect. They occur also especially on species which feed on large leaf plants, and I believe I may say that though a great many species of caterpillars present these lines, they rarely, if ever, occur in species which live on grass, while, on the contrary, they are very frequent in those species which live on large leaf plants. It might at first be objected to this view that there are many cases, as in the elephant hot moth, in which caterpillars have both. A little consideration, however, will explain this. In small caterpillars these oblique lines would be useless, because they must have some relation, not only in color, but in their distance apart, to the ribs of the leaves. Hence, while there are a great many species which have longitudinal lines when young, and diagonal ones when they are older and larger, there is not, I believe, a single one which begins with diagonal lines, and then replaces them with longitudinal ones. The disappearance of the longitudinal lines on those segments which have diagonal ones, is striking. Where the lines are marked, it is an advantage, because white lines crossing one another at such an angle have no relation to anything which occurs in plants, and would make the creature more conspicuous. When, therefore, the diagonal lines are developed, the longitudinal ones often disappear. There is one other point in connection with these diagonal lines to which I must call your attention. In many species they are white, but in some cases as, for instance, in the beautiful green caterpillar of the private hot moth the white streak is accompanied by a colored one, in that case lilac, at first we might think that this would be a disadvantage, as tending to make the caterpillar more conspicuous, and in fact, if we put one in full view for instance, out on a table and focus the eye on it, the colored lines are very striking, 
but we must remember that the habit of the insect is to sit on the lower side of the leaf, generally near the middle rib, and in the subdued light of such a situation, especially if the eye be not looking exactly at them, the colored lines beautifully simulate a line of soft shadow, such as must always accompany a strong rib, and I need not tell any artist that the shadows of yellowish-green must be purplish. Moreover, anyone who has ever found one of these large caterpillars will, I am sure, agree with me that it is surprising, when we consider their size and conspicuous coloring, how difficult it is to see them. But though the prevailing color of caterpillars is green, there are numerous exceptions. In one great family of moths the prevailing color is brown. These caterpillars, however, escape observation by their great similarity to brown twigs a resemblance which is heightened by their peculiar attitudes, and in many cases by the existence of warts or protuberances, which look like buds. Some, however, even of these caterpillars, when very young, are green. Again, some caterpillars are white. These feed on and burrow in wood. The ringlet butterfly also has whitish caterpillars, and this may at first sight appear to contradict the rule, since it feeds on grass. It's habit island however, to keep at the roots by day, and feed only at night. In various general we find black caterpillars, which are of course very conspicuous, and, so far as I know, not distasteful to birds. In such cases, however, it will be found that they are covered with hairs or spines, which protect them from most birds. In these species the bold dark color may be an advantage, by rendering the hair more conspicuous. Many caterpillars are black and hairy but I do not know any large caterpillar which is black and smooth. Brown caterpillars, also, are frequently protected by hairs or spines in the same way, but, unlike black ones, they are frequently naked. These fall into two principal categories, firstly, those which, like the geometry, put themselves into peculiar and stiff attitudes, so that in form, color, and position they closely resemble bits of dry stick, and, secondly, those which feed on low plants concealing themselves on the ground by day, and only coming out in the dark, yellow and yellowish green caterpillars are abundant, and their color is a protection, red and blue, on the contrary, are much less common colors, and are generally present as spots, moreover, caterpillars with red lines or spots are generally hairy, and this for the reason give,